seven months since I took hallucinogens and realised that both time and the act of measuring it are merely comforting artificial constructs used to make sense of a chaotic and meaningless existence. I'm Marsha Jeffries with the top movie headlines. The Airbud franchise is being rebooted. The original film centred on a dog who joins a basketball team with the titular Golden Retriever going on to play football in Airbud Golden Receiver, soccer in Airbud World Pup, and baseball in Airbud Seventh Inning Fetch. Now, Arthouse Studio Annapurna Pictures has begun production on Air Will Be Bud, in which the plucky canine becomes an oil baron after discovering a petroleum well during a backyard bone burial. The family film will be out in time for the summer school holidays and promises to violently explore the concept of capitalism as both creator and destroyer. Meanwhile, the streaming wars are about to get a whole lot bloodier. As the top on-demand services battle it out for supremacy, C-grade production studio Schlock & Key has announced it will be launching its own in the spring. The company, which was established in the 1970s to provide affordable, soft-core pornography for Montenegro Airlines, is hoping to challenge big hitters Netflix, Disney Plus and Amazon Prime with its archive of titles such as Catch That Phrenologist, School for Robots, Jackson Pollock Meets Frankenstein, and I was a teenage adult. Customers who sign up now will receive a special introductory fee of only $49 per month, with the films only playable on the Nokia 3310. In other news, an actor you'd forgotten about who used to be big in the 90s has announced he or she is working to launch a sequel to their biggest hit. The actor, who has fallen on hard times and not been seen on screen in a while, played a supporting role in the critically acclaimed blockbuster and has expressed a willingness to return for the sequel should it ever transpire. The actor even suggested a plotline for the film which would see them taking a more prominent and emotionally resonant role. Studio insiders have confirmed no such sequel is in development. In other news, climate change will soon reach an irreversible tipping point. Viral pandemics continue to paralyse global economies and experts warn the corruption of free information is irrevocably shattering the world's democracies. Now let's check in with Werner Herzog at The Chopper. In the beginning, there was nothing. Space, silence. There is the promise of direction, of opportunity. There is meaning and purpose. The sun rises and a new day emerges. Two million motorists travel this road every morning. If two million travel in the opposite direction every evening, was anyone on the road at all? A single explorer seeks a new path by trekking the old. He roams the landscape in search of his destination. His destiny. A road leads to a road that leads to a road that leads to a road. A continuum of possibility. It is a road that may go on forever. The infinite made real lies before the explorer. He begins his descent into the unknown preparing to become one with the most profound innovation in the history of human culture, the prosaic world of the motorway. Slowly, the numbers increase. They multiply as would a virus, clogging each artery until the whole is completely corrupted from within and it can no longer function at all. It looks nothing like it was. The freedom once promised is now an illusion, lost in time. There is no escape. It is a true nightmare. Each automobile has a mythology. It's a figuration of animals, of man, of spirit. Is it the spirit of an animal in a man? Is it a marriage? Is it a new being? It is a way of communication between humans and the future to evocate the past. It teaches us lessons, a methodology to understand the world. What kind of world is it? It is anonymous, enigmatic, but it speaks to all of us. It tells us stories, 
Who are these motorists? Do they dream? Do they despair? What are their hopes? What are their families? They are here for different reasons, but together for the same. Alone, yet united. They are silent in their daily routine, but seem to speak to us from a familiar yet distant universe. To me, they were like priests preparing for mass, finding themselves in a separate reality, where space and time acquire a new, strange dimension. They look upward, frustrated, as if spirits must be invoked for the journey to ultimately end. Is it the work of a creator or the result of a natural evolution of land, man, and machine? Are we witnesses to order or chaos? From the outside, you cannot see it. From the inside, you are consumed by it. A seemingly endless void of nothingness. This car has special hubcaps that spin while the car is stationary, giving the illusion of movement, of action, of life. It is almost a form of proto-cinema. It mocks the other drivers, taunting them with visions of momentum. It hypnotizes them like the citizens of an 18th century Bavarian town that has forgotten the secrets of glass blowing. Wittgenstein spoke of looking through a closed window of a house and seeing a man flailing about strangely. You cannot see or hear the violent storms raging outside and don't realize it's taking great efforts for this man even to stand on his own two feet. There are hidden storms within us all. The noise is deafening. Is it the noise of the cars? Or is it the road itself crying? Does it beg forgiveness or weep for mercy? Do we hear its heartbeat or ours? Is it a static monster that has to be tamed or defeated? Or is it a dynamic living entity constantly changing its identity day by day, minute by minute, second by second? Human life is a part of an endless chain of catastrophes. Billions of years ago, the human race fled in panic from the oceans and crawled on solid land to escape the horror of the depths. Is it time we returned? The traffic is a swarm. It is a fungus, a plague, consuming everything in its path. I can no longer stand to look at it. I cannot bear witness. My loathing for it is so intense, it could open up a hole in the planet. The cars would tumble into it, cascading as a hole grew ever larger. The machines spill backwards into the void as the earth beneath the road gives way. Gaze now upon the eye of the world, the mouth, the esophagus, the anus, and the belly button. All will be caught within. Cars, drivers, passengers. The force of the wound is so great, it draws in that which is not tethered. Even witnesses are dragged into its vacuum, helpless flotsam in a violent and unforgiving shaft. It is illogical to fear a tunnel. It does not exist. It cannot exist. It is simply the absence of mass. The vehicles devolve, as if also tumbling through time. They appear as buggies, then horses, then orange marmalade. There is no longitude, no latitude, no logic. We bleed into the abyss. We return to the womb 
of the world. Underwater ocean is this now? As I doggy paddle for life, I cannot help but wonder what horrors lie beneath the water. Could there be scores of mutant crocodiles turned albino from the cooling water released by nuclear power plants? Many supposed experts challenge me when I speak of such creatures, but their existence is an ecstatic truth. The experts say to me, how can you be sure? How can you be sure? That word, sure. They use it interchangeably with certainty, as if certainty is a virtue. There is a certainty within the Manhattan phone directory, but there is no truth in it, only facts. It will not tell me if Mr. Jonathan Smith cries into his pillow at night. And if those teardrops collect beneath the earth into a spectacular pool of tears. This is a pool of tears. The earth's tears. She has wept at what we have done to her. Humans with our nuclear energy and pigment-free reptiles. Yes, I am sure of this. And it is that shore that I now swim towards climbing out of Mr. Jonathan Smith's salty lament. On the banks of the subterranean lake, I gaze at a sky of stone and mineral. It is a cave, much like Plato's cave, but without the fire and shadows and allegory. In a sense, it is just a cave. Here, time and space lose their meaning. High on the cavernous walls above me, like the colossal geoglyphs that prehistoric man carved into the limestone on the sides of hills, are enormous paintings of animal and man. Will we ever be able to understand the vision of artists across such an abyss of time? Were they giant, or have I somehow diminished, compressed, into insignificance like history itself. The haunting shadows give the feeling of eyes gazing upon me. The ground is littered with the discarded remains of long dead creatures, like the parking lot of a McDonald's restaurant. Up ahead, the footprint of a wolf sits beside the footprint of a young child. Did the hungry wolf stalk the boy, or did they walk together as friends? Or were their tracks made thousands of years apart? We may never know. We think of the past as a single unit of time. Seven thousand years is unfathomable to us. Us who speak of the 1980s and the baby boomers as if they are long-forgotten relics. The footprints are immense, each the size of La Grand Souffre volcano in the West Indies. Will I one day be found tens of thousands of years from now by curious life forms who determined that I was a primitive pygmy who lived among the woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers? Down here, in the microscopic world of time, what was once an impressive cave is now a vast and limitless world. In the limestone deposits and charcoal remains, there is a whole new existence. Stalagmites rise on the horizon like the mighty Matterhorn. Paw prints from long extinct beasts are now deep vibrant valleys. 
The landscape is littered with the ghosts of vanquished creatures. Like a mountain range, the skeleton of an eagle spreads its ten-foot diameter, and near it, the skull of a Neanderthal. What Homeric battles took place here? What feats of endurance? The world reveals itself to those who travel on foot. I journey through terrain that would once have been a mere footstep. What molecular worlds do I miss even now? What civilizations exist between each stride? How will I ever escape this fun-sized world? No pristine wilderness remains that has not been defiled by the scourge of progress. I have always been a part of that scourge. I loathe my own relief when I come across such a blessed defiling. In the distance, in this teensy province, there is a culture, a night market, where fire illuminates the stalls like lampshades. They remind me of the Marrakesh night market, where I once purchased a beautiful handmade ceramic pot and the screenwrites to Gertrude Bell's life story. Street performers drape threadworms over their shoulders, attempting to catch the attention and business of less savvy tourists. A trader shadows me, hoping he can sell his finest silks. I do not know how to convey to them that I am not interested in material trivialities. So I play the angry birds on my iPhone until they go away. The scent of cannabis and spice seduces me to the stall of one particular street vendor. There, a man with a caterpillar mustache sits cross-legged on a stool. He has captured me in his gaze like a tractor beam. He takes a long draw from his jazz cigarette and then regards it, as if it is a lost landscape painted by the 17th century Flemish artist Hercule Seegers. In my youth, I feared it might injure my brain. But now that I'm pretty sure I have none, I do it again and again. I have never liked the culture of drugs. The lifestyle of hippies who spend every day stoned. I have only been stoned once in my life when an angry mob in equatorial Africa accused me of stealing the sun when in fact I had merely borrowed it for the afternoon. I believe nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. We are all things that labor under the illusion of having a self. Well, that accretion of sensory experience and feelings, programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody, when in fact, everybody is nobody. I think the honorable thing for our species to do is to deny our programming. Stop reproducing. Walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. The hollow pretension of rote monologue compels me to leave, but the caterpillar holds me in his steely grasp, captivating my attention in the manner of an advertisement for bourbon or the Lincoln Navigator. Keep your temper. Realize that all your love, all your hate, all your memories, all your pain, it's all the same thing. It's all the same dream. A dream that you're inside a locked room. A dream about being a person. And like a lot of dreams, there's a monster at the end of it. I see big things for you. Big things. It is the line those in my business have heard many times before. Agents and Hollywood executives seducing newcomers with the promise they will be made big. It is a covenant I have always run from. Frightened by what must be done 
in reciprocity. The casting couch and the sexual quid pro quo. You see, Father William, his hair's gone white. He can stand on his head. Just doesn't seem right. His jaw's real weak. Can't chew a fig. But the food that I give him, it makes him real big. Many great chefs have been known to sing as they cook. Tom Dudley, captain of the mignonette, is said to have sung most of Wagner's ring cycle as he prepared to cannibalize sickly cabin boy Richard Parker. But this is a smell not of a cabin boy, but of that great delicacy, the mushroom. I would recognize anywhere the sweet aroma of a fried fungus. You know what fungi is? It's a wazy, it's a woozy, it's fairy dust. It never landed. Is it possible that I never landed? Am I still in the air, hovering above the world, dreaming this phantasmagorica? Perhaps fairy dust is what I require to return to the realm of what I now consider giants. All right, all right, all right. What we have here is wild shiitake mushrooms, pan-fried garlic and ginger, seasoned with salt and mint, served with rosemary as a garnish, and thyme as a flat circle. My whole life, I have avoided extravagant meals, preferring instead the simple, ingenuous pleasures of a pizza slice or a large mac. Such vulgarity is healthy and safe. Yet this dish is the most wondrous and miraculous thing I have tasted since 1979, when I lost a bet with Errol Morris and had to eat my shoe in front of an audience at the UC Theatre in downtown Berkeley. Documentary filmmaker Les Blank called it soul food, a joke I refuse to understand to this day. I find the trooms usually pair well with Chardonnay. But the best I can do is a glass of red wine. Now imagine it's white. Like Shakespeare's tragic Venetian general Othello, this food is profoundly Moorish. Even after I have scraped every last morsel from the plate, it continues to fill me up far beyond what is satisfying. I feel my body expanding to compensate, and I begin to grow. The market disappearing beneath me as does a runway during takeoff. That's what I love about visitors, man. They get bigger, I stay the same high. That civilization is now a mere glint in the dust. It shines like a distant star, beautiful from afar, but up close, hostile, and murderous. I have always feared the stars. What looks friendly to us is actually 200,000 atomic explosions every second. The sun is a tiny grain of sand. There are many even nastier suns out there. I am fascinated by the notion of civilization as a thin layer of ice resting upon a deep ocean of darkness and chaos. In Germany, we have a word, Fernweh. It means yearning for distant lands. There are native tribes in South America that have wandered the forest for hundreds of years in search of a place where there is neither sorrow nor pain. I have never believed that such a place exists, not in a cave, not in this forest. A path winds its way through the trees, daring me to diverge from its course. I will not give it the satisfaction. I am a Spanish conquistador, searching for El Dorado. Once I tried to walk to Albania, but it was closed, controlled with an iron fist by hardcore Maoists who wouldn't permit anyone to enter. 
It was an experience that prepared me well for the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In the foliage of the trees, there is no fruit, but merely indistinct leaves and the occasional set of feline teeth. There is something utterly profoundly mysterious and hilarious about cats. They are often just going wild, and I love them for that. But it is a mistake to assume that all cats wish to be our companions, who will watch German soccer with us on a Sunday morning, curled up on the sofa. They may also be terrifying predators, giant beasts who roam the wilds of Africa and Asia, whose growls provoke an evolutionary dread within we apes, one that stretches back to our ancestors, which type lies in wait before me. Hello. Yes, welcome. <laughs> this, is, this is a truly uh, place for the lost. Uh, they, they all tend to end up here, yes, <laughs> because few can navigate their way out of or indeed into such a locale without the uh, uh, expertise of one deeply familiar with uh, <laughs> uh, these, uh, these, uh, these surroundings. Uh, expertise, it's, it's been said, is comparable uh, to the likes of Coltrane as he played the tenor sax, so do I play these woods. Uh, I scat them, I improvise, uh, scabbity boo boo. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, take a left, shop a boo uh, on your right. <laughs> you have to listen to the directions I'm not giving you. <laughs> they slip between, uh, uh, b- between the, the notes, if you will, the, 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 the exploration uh, uh, through language of ideas, the, the free association that removes us from the constraints of normal ABCD responses, the, the, the tennis match of dialogue that expands out of our minds, takes us into places that can only be reached by accessing the hidden synapses, the temporal lobe, the temporary, the tempura, tempestuous, uh, the, the tempest, uh, a storm of ideas, uh, <laughs> This is uh, thrilling, isn't it? <laughs> uh, concepts. Concepts, my friend. Uh, that's, that's the real jungle we must navigate uh, until we find that precious treasure, be it buried gold or, or a rare flower, perhaps a, a lost love or meaning. Uh, meaning! Yes, meaning. We must find meaning, indeed. It is a creature consumed... By its own affectations. Of course, I, 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 I can't be held responsible for those who go wandering, or, or, or indeed wandering, in the woods. Uh, uh, people who were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't, they didn't stop to think about if they should. But just as life uh, uh, finds a way, anyone can find a way back out again. It doesn't really... It doesn't really matter which direction you go, so long as you go, uh, so long as you go quickly. Yes, quickly. Must go faster. Faster, must go faster, faster, faster. If there was a useful (laughs) advice hidden within its stuttered posturings, I did not identify it. The creature's toothy grin hangs in the air as the rest of it disappears. Uh, I forgot my mantra. Uh Uh-oh. It is the most pretentious exit I have seen since Gorbachev met Reagan in Iceland, seeking a guarantee that the Strategic Defense Initiative would not be implemented. And Reagan responded by riding a horse out of a nearby window. I increase my pace as per the cat's instructions. And the forest matches my haste. The trees soon part, revealing a familiar sight. A grotesque parody of civility that is Hollywood Boulevard. It is now covered in grass, shaded by a canopy of oak trees. Hollywood has been reclaimed by the natural world. It is a triumph for Tinseltown, but a bit of a step down for nature. Looming above the horizon is the Dolby Theatre, consumed in vines, and before it a glade with rows of tables covered in gleaming white tablecloths. An 
usher directs me to the end of the long table, at which sits three possible movie stars whose fame has not yet permeated the recesses of my memory. No room! We got no room! And yet, there is plenty of room. Around the table are seats full of empty people. We must all drink wine. Drink wine. Have some wine. The bunny before me perfectly portrays the particular loneliness a man feels. The last time a wild animal compelled me to drink, it was in the Antarctic. A penguin and I were blind with intoxication when I noticed he had waddled off. He was too far away to stop, and he would not respond to my voice. He was headed into the interior of the vast continent, towards certain death. The award for best butter goes to... A pocket watch! With great panic, I realize that I have found my way to an award luncheon. My childhood nursery was painted by Hieronymus Bosch, and I would read bedtime stories by Marquis de Sade. Yet nothing had prepared me for the nightmare of such a vapid event as this. What the fuck is this music? Somebody ought to change it. I should play something. I'll play anything. I've played everything from a raven to a writing desk. No typecasting for this guy. Whoa. I have never known how to make small talk. The wine glass on the table screams drink me. Like a parched man lost in the desert, I consume it. It is a peculiar sensation, my innards shutting up like a telescope, until my voice is shrunk to the size of the smallest of small talk. I must remember to comment on the weather and ask if everybody read that article. You can look at my head if you want. I lost my hair in March for the jewel thief movie. And the award for cleanest cup goes to the next place along. They say you don't get one of those unless you can answer a riddle first. What I've been practicing. What type of farmer has a sick horse, a strong cow, and a great ass? On the edges of the glade, the masses have begun to gather the wretched remnants of society. They take photos and yell the name of actors. Hello, so-and-so. Please write your name on this paper, such and such. Security guards hold them back. The people need food, but yearn for attention. But there is not enough of either. They must only observe. When should you look, but not touch? Touch! But not taste. Taste. But not swallow. What is beyond my control? How can you get out when they keep pulling you back in? I am the only one here who is clinically sane. The award for best riddle goes to... Paul. Riding on both. He deserves it. He's proven to be a most useful mammal, but I would like to hear a story. Like the famous photograph of Francis Coppola in the Philippines. The rabbit holds a pistol to its own head. Tell a story, or the bunny gets it. In this emerging heart of darkness, the threat of violence and adulation finally wakes the third actor from its slumber. Every great story consists of three acts. The first act is called the Pledge. The Pledge lived with his two brothers near a well, but the well contained only treacle, and it made them all sick. It was less of a well than an unwell. The Dormouse is a most forgetful creature. I worked with one in the early 1970s. It could not remember its lines, and just stood there on the raft with its young hanging from its mouth. Anyway, there was a will. Did I mention the will? And the award for best acceptance goes to... 
the first to reach the stage. Oh, that's me. On the outskirts of the luncheon, the crowd grow restless. They no longer call for the celebrities, but for their blood. Inside this erection of adoration, the actors do not notice. Whoa! Wow! I was gonna tell a joke, but it might not work. The pocket watch stole my speech. That's okay. We are surrounded on all sides. There is no way out. My watch doesn't tell the time, you know. I want to thank my acting mentor, Kao Goju, the Chinese god of fear, and one of the eight immortals of the Taoist pantheon. Kao used to tell me, stories are an escape. And he was right. He was right. Within that insipid pabloom, a kernel of truth shines through. The only means of escape is the well within the Dormouse's story. I climb into it and fall away from the chaos into an endless vortex of insanity and treacle. You're only supposed to blow the bloody door back. Solitaire, ring games, deal of blinds, dealer has three diamonds, dealer bets, three diamonds, final bets, final bets, dealer busts, next hand, two whole cards, two whole cards, two whole cards, jack of spades, king of clubs, bishop, bishop takes king, checkmate. Once in the Gobi Desert, I had to gamble for the last gallon of water. It meant two days of life. I gambled Jack Bones against local tribesmen. In that moment of combat and fortune, my chief rival became my closest friend. We wagered and waged in perfect harmony, as if two cellists playing a Vivaldi concerto. It was something soft inside us both. The tribesmen bested me, and I loved him for it. If I could strangle the bastard... I would. Hands on heads. All players, hands on heads. Dealer takes all. Oh, no need to fuss for little old me. I'm not made of bronze. Darling, start me off with a royal flush. There's a good chap. Red suit if you can, like I had in charade. Though that might have been darling Audrey. Do you have charades here? Can you play charades with cards? We should invent it. It needs a new name, of course. Crusades, perhaps. I once made my ex-husband take me on a crusade. How's that for blasphemy? Dressed my maids as Amazons and rode bare-breasted halfway to Damascus. Husband had a seizure and I damn near died of windburn. But the troops were dazzled. Scotch whiskey, please, and if you have it, famous grass, much like myself. I've not spent much time amongst royalty. I once had a close personal relationship with Kaiser Wilhelm II. But as he died a year before my birth, it was never fully reciprocated. Six, no help. Three, no help. Hot for the queen, ace for the German. Snake eyes for the cat with a teeth. Red clubs for the lady. I have not felt such tenseness since I was a boy. When the surface tension of the Rhine River allowed me to walk across into the duchy of the Grand Fenwick where I was immediately detained for several months on the charge of committing a military incursion. 
after determining me to be the sole enemy combatant, the duchy declared itself victor, and the Grand Fenwick continues to pay reparations to Germany to this day. I once painted my nails red on a summer trip to Venice. I've never seen it done with a black suit before. Deal is busted. That's a heads-off round. Cap is removed for the next game. That's a decap for the dealer. Well, that's a fine how-do-you-do. Come, we'll find the croquet table. The odds are better and the drinks are colder. In Munich, there's a saying. Never follow a violent empress into a gambling den. It was intended to warn children against colonizing South Asia, but now takes on a new prophetic meaning. Being queen is so much better than being president. You don't have to admit you're over 35. The corridors of machines appear to stretch into eternity. The unceasing pulling of levers and spinning of cherries, of white roses tumbling and metal discs cascading from holes. The calla lilies are in bloom again. Such a strange flower, suitable to any occasion. As we walk, I notice that we are not beside machines, but rows of hedges and flowers. Yet still the mindless masses sit at attention, shoveling coins into the shrubbery and receiving nothing in return. They cannot tell the difference. I could have been Queen of Africa, but instead I chose here. Nature is what we are put in this world to rise above. The sky goes dark, as if signaling danger. Above us tower horrible flamingos, screaming horrible things. Kill everyone now. Condone first-degree murder. Advocate cannibalism. Eat shit. Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. They close in on me, the terrible necks twisting and arcing in a manner of so-called battle ropes at a so-called gymnasium. The only thing that saves me from these creatures is the appearance of their arch-enemy, the Hedgehog. The Hedgehog is just as petrifying as the monster it now battles. Its small, beady eyes too far apart, its gaping mouth filled with human teeth. It is a creature that confirms and damns evolution, for no intelligent designer could knowingly create such a being of nightmarish savagery. Defeated, the hedgehog speeds away, leaving behind a pile of waste, which the flamingo then consumes. How have I come to be in this world of demons and barbarity? A griffin circles above me. It has picked me out as its prey. The last time I encountered a mythical winged creature was when I rescued a phoenix from a car accident on a Los Angeles side road. I never received a reward, but he did say nice things about me in interviews. But now, paralyzed with fear, I am helpless as the griffin swoops to grasp me in its razor claws. Close, I see from its coloring that it is an American griffin. I wonder if this animal, in its grace and ferociousness, could somehow be tamed. Perhaps I could gain its trust and live amongst its kind. I am looking not at wild nature, but at myself, my own nature. But then I recall the words David Letterman once said to me on his show. Is it going to happen that, that one day we read a, a news article about you being eaten by one of these griffins? <laughs> Those words, now hauntingly prescient. I gaze up into the face of the griffin and see no kinship, no understanding, no mercy. I see only overwhelming indifference of nature. To me... There is no such thing as a secret world of the Griffins. Above a vast empty beach, I feel the creature's grip loosening as it contorts. We tumble to the sandy ground, and the Griffin 
unexpectedly transforms itself into a werewolf. It runs into the undergrowth, perhaps hoping to escape its own essence. I am left on a boundless grey coast besides a dark ocean. There is no knowing where I am or in which direction lies home. Unlike most turtles, I can think like a lobster. Turtles think like hawks, but lobsters think like rats, and rats are like insects. At the water's edge is a turtle, sitting upon a large rock. I am its only audience, its sole congregation. I do not trust turtles. They are nature's Frenchmen. Will you walk a little faster, said the whiting to the snail. There's a porpoise close behind us, and he's treading on my tail. See the lobster and the turtles through the narrow window. They are waiting on the shingle. If you dance, it is a bingo. The waters rise around us, as if we are somehow fast-forwarding through the ages. We are now submerged, and have somehow adapted... I am now an amphibious creature, and the ocean provides me clarity. It is obvious that the turtle is not real. He is a mockery, not even turtly enough for the turtle club. Tis the voice of the lobster. I heard him declare, you have baked me too brown. I must sugar my hair. As a specter with his eyelids, the octopus will claim it has always been me. The author of your pain. I find his references too obvious, and his accent too unconvincing, and now see that it is not a rock that he sits upon, but a helicopter. My helicopter. I extract it from under him, reclaiming my property. The turtle remains floating in the water, as if he had never needed the rock. Just as Fitzcarraldo used Peruvian slave labor to pull a steamship through the Amazon, so will I pull this vehicle of the air through the depths of the ocean. You can really have no notion how delightful it will be when you give up on your dentistry and settle in the sea, in much the way a great white shark will tend to deal in purposes, so too will a bounty hunter often deal in corpses. This planet is made beautiful by its wildlife, particularly under the water. The creatures always speak to you. They try to make contact. They are sad when they are left alone. Above me, The sky is frozen. The sea is an atmosphere of liquid helium. I can hear the sound of the wild blue yonder. This is home to me. questions, Your Honor. The defense may cross-examine the witness. Every escape 
leads me to a new puzzle. I am caught. I am a court reporter. And my trials are not yet at an end. There is one left. I only have one question. Where did you get that hat? This isn't mine. I keep these to sell. I have none of my own. I'm a poor man, your honor. The defense rests. I gaze upon the faces of the jury, and to my great horror, I discover that they are all me. How can this be? How can I comprise a jury of peers? In March of 2020, I told David Marchese of the New York Times that I had no peers, except for perhaps Kurosawa when he made Rashomon. Could it be that Kurosawa is now on trial? How can we judge such a man? You've listened to a long and complex case. You've listened to the testimony. You've had the law read to you and interpreted as it applies to this case. It's now your duty to sit down and try to separate the facts from cheap tricks. If there is a reasonable doubt in your minds as to the guilt of the accused, then you shall not pass judgment. If, however, there is no reasonable doubt, then you must, in good conscience, find the accused guilty. However you decide, your verdict must never be let. Nor should it be early. It arrives precisely when it means to. In the event that you find the accused guilty, the bench will not entertain a recommendation from Bursa. You're faced with a grave responsibility. Thank you. All right, gentlemen. Let's take our seats. This had better be fast. I've got tickets to the Seven Samurai tonight. I must be the only guy in the whole world who has not seen it yet. Laughs, then sits at the table. How did you like that business about the knife? Did you ever hear a phonier tale? Are we to believe the bandit's story? He claims the samurai praised his swordsmanship. I've lived among bandits my whole life. You cannot trust any of them. Would a bandit kill a samurai in the open? So that all could see him, he is too bright for such an act. Bright, he is a common, ignorant slob. He don't even sprocken good English. He doesn't sprocken good English. The men argue amongst themselves. I do not know which one of them I am. Perhaps I am none of them. Perhaps I am all of them. If I cannot change my own mind, how can I ever hope to change the mind of another. The samurai's wife had an expensive dagger with a pearl inlay. Last night, I bought the same dagger at a pawn shop for $6. Did you notice the medium wore glasses? On many occasions, I considered killing kids guilty or not guilty. I don't mind that gets me here early. I don't owe him You have sat there and and voted guilty with everyone else because there are some baseball tickets Burning a hole in, in, in your pocket. So Be quiet, all of you. I began no, to get you are a peculiar feeling and insurrection. this trial. You lousy bunch of bleeding hearts. You will not intimidate me. I am entitled to my opinion. This is a waste of time. You smart fellows. I think what you are talking about one of the great masters here. We cannot decide in five minutes. Supposing we're wrong. Supposing we're wrong. Yes, supposing this building should fall down on my head. What is the matter with you all? You are letting him slip through our fingers. Twelve identical men locked in a room. Fighting to pass judgment on an established canon. Nobody can hear us but ourselves. This is the new discourse. I hear the same arguments I have heard all my life. Rotten woodcutters. You work your life out. One of them offers some chewing gum. May I offer you 
some chewing gum. Gum is a cruel trick played on the stomach by the mouth. With every chew, it promises sustenance, but none ever arrives. This is a metaphor for life, and I gladly accept a stick. As I furiously masticate, I feel myself growing bigger. Is this gum an anomaly? A deviation from the norm, packed with a bounty of nutrition to atone for the emptiness of its brothers. This is also a metaphor for life. My head now touches the ceiling. I cannot stop chewing. The expansion and ascension continues exponentially. My head bursts through the courthouse. Below me, the menagerie of creatures looking like ants, scurrying around their inconsequential lives. I swell back up through the voids and the tunnels I have traveled on this journey. of the land diminish and blend like an image forged by a dot matrix printer I am a giant and then I am a mountain and then I am a planet I now sit upon the earth a being of equal size and mass with matching gravity together we must appear to the universe as celestial buttocks. But like the common hemorrhoid, I continue my growth. Soon, I am as broad and deep as the solar system. The planets, mere specks, floating past my face like dust particles. It is too much to bear. My density folds in on itself, and I collapse. A black hole of supermassive proportions. I fall in on myself. In the screaming void, I hurtle through space and time. I see the colors of infinity. I feel the dust of eternity. I smell the effluvium of overwrought grandiloquence. And then, suddenly... It is all over. I feel a tranquility I have never experienced on earth. I am a fetus, a star child within a cosmic uterus, gazing out upon the world as if it were a trinket hung from a child's mobile. The beauty of our planet is indescribable. The coldness of space is unimaginable. My baby penis is showing. Down on the surface, there are no more airfields, no more towns, no bridges, no dams, no money, no banks, no time, and no breath. It is returned to its pristine beauty. It is prehistoric again. On closer examination, its grotesqueness reappears the metal serpent I once despised becomes visible again winding its way through our world dividing and connecting us but it is no serpent it is an oeuvre of unique remarkable vehicles within which lies fragile souls distinct and unique together mighty but apart heavenly in their vulnerability. High above the concrete and bitumen, I now understand. I finally see it for what it is. 
a community, a one made by and for the many. The gridlock is all of us. It is an abundance of humanity, a wave of stories and dreams cascading into itself. It is the most beautiful sight I have ever seen. It is traffic. Thanks, Verna. Today's outlook is cloudy yet utilitarian in nature, tinged with a fatalistic existential angst. Now it's Bazira time. Hello and welcome to the Bazira Project's Radio Free Cinema. Goodbye.